Welcome to the Daily Standard podcast. Now, as you can tell if you're actually listening, the Daily Standard is back after a short hiatus under somewhat new management. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I am delighted to be joining the folks at the Weekly Standard. And our goal here is going to be pretty straightforward. We're going to try to provide a podcast that is smart, conservative, and non-tribal. And to help me explain what the heck that means is Stephen Hayes, the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, and the guy who came up with this idea. Thanks for joining me. Charlie, it's great to have you. Welcome. So I guess the, the, the fundamental question is, why does the world need another podcast? <laughs> I'm, not sure the, I'm not sure the world needs another podcast. I think the world needs another podcast that will offer um, some unique insights. And, and um, you know, having known you for 20 years, 20 plus years, uh, makes, us, plus. makes us sound very old. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that you're going to be uh, the one to guide us in, in making that possible. And we've got a tremendous stable of writers and contributors here who uh, you can talk to on a daily basis and I think will help give people context for the stories that they're reading on our website and in the magazine that they're seeing on news elsewhere uh, and really explain people what's going on to Washington, what's going on uh, in this world. And at a time when there is sort of a crisis of noise in the country, I think think we're going to be able to really cut through a lot of that and provide people with real information based on facts, logic, and reason uh, that, that will help them understand what's going on. Well, I like the mission statement that you came up with, smart, conservative, non-tribal. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. I think that's a good, uh, uh, that's a good starting point. But, but I'd like to add one other element. I, I'm also going to try to make this podcast a place where bullshit goes to die, if I can actually use that word. I think you can. I think you can. This because is one of the we, we, of we live in an age where half of the talking points we know, right? You know, we we know are bullshit, right? And and I, and I think it's important to 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 call them out. And I think that's one of the kinds of things that we do. And I know that the Weekly Standard is doing is doing fact checking, which I think is immensely important. Somebody other than Politifact should be doing fact checking. Yeah, I, I mean, look, this is this is one of the things that we've really emphasized over the past uh, year. I mean, of course, we've done good reporting for for years going back. I mean, since the founding of the magazine in 1995, but uh, we've we've kind of doubled down on reporting facts in part because I do think that people don't know what to believe. I mean, I hear this when I talk mm -hmm. to conservative groups around the country. One question I get virtually every time. I give a speech is, uh, who do you believe? How do you, how do you go somewhere where you know what to believe? Well, we aim to provide that in the magazine and we certainly aim to provide that here. And I think, you know, we're never going to be, uh, and never have been the place where we put on a Jersey, uh, you know, we're a conservative journal of opinion. We're not a Republican party outfit. We criticize the Republican Party and Republican Party officials with some regularity. We cut through the talking points we have over the years. We will continue to do that. I think it's important to say, particularly given you know your views on the current president and mm -hmm. my views on the current president, um, this is not going to be a you know a, a never Trump confab where we come and whine about the president all day every day either. We're going to talk through some of the big issues where where we can we'll call balls and strikes where we think the president is distorting the game we'll point that I, out too i think that's exactly right well listen let's get it let's get into this because we have a full docket today there's uh, just some extraordinary testimony going on from the intelligence community on threats to national security in front of the senate right now a lot of it sounds like pretty clear shots at donald trump 
There's the deficit-busting bill from the party that was once known uh, for fiscal conservatism. Uh, the White House uh, continues to be un unable to get its story straight about the domestic abuse. And there's even rumors about the return of Bob Corker. Uh, spoiler alert, probably not. But, okay, but Steve, I have to ask you the most burning question of the day. What did you think about the Obama portraits? <laughs> well, let me, let me caveat that by uh, announcing in advance that, uh, that I, am, I am not much of an art critic. I have my favorites. Um, they're all the Spanish painters. Um, so I thought they were weird, to be honest. I didn't understand why the president was sitting in front of bushes. Um, he appears to have an extra pinky, uh, an extra finger on his yes. hand, yes. which uh, struck me as a little bizarre when I saw that pointed out. And I didn't think I didn't think the Michelle Obama portrait was very good, honestly. Um, See, I, I wonder what what percentage of people in Washington, D.C. know in their gut that those are just horrible pictures, but feel the need to say, oh, that's wonderful. It's art. Yes. You know, it, people don't <laughs> people don't have any hesitancy going to a restaurant where the food is lousy and saying the food is lousy. Even sports fans, you know, don't mind saying that when a player <laughs> has played lousy, that's lousy. But when it comes to art, there is this, you know, in order to show that we are sophisticated, yes. you know, that we are woke, that we have to look at these pieces of art that we're thinking in our heads, boy, that is complete crap. But thinking, oh, it's marvelous. It's wonderful. It's <laughs> no, deep. No, it's true. Right. I think that, otherwise, I think that infects, affects music, too, right? I mean, you know, sometimes you'll be listening to this totally dissonant crap, whether you're talking about, you know, the, the, the hard metal or you're talking about um, some obscure jazz artist. And it's just not good music. But you're supposed to stroke your chin and nod your head and show that you're sophisticated by saying how great it is. That's what I think is happening with, the, with these, these portraits. I just don't think they're very good. You know the best part of getting old and getting hair as gray as you and I have that at a certain point you just don't you don't care anymore what people right, think. Exactly. And say, I don't. I know I'm supposed to like it, but I just don't like it. Okay, <laughs> let's. I want to jump into this because uh, you you have some thoughts on this. I think the uh, this is the uh, in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee. You have uh, all of the bigs who are giving their annual assessment about threats to the country, and we've been hearing some rather remarkable things. Uh, coming from uh, the FBI, the director of national intelligence. What jumped out at you, Steve? Well, I, I was really struck. I mean, the, the thing to know about uh, this particular hearing is they prepare all year for this hearing on what's called Worldwide Threats Hearing. It's it's something that, that one of the only opportunities U.S. intelligence community leaders have to appear in public and talk about what's uh, threatening the country. And so this the preparation for this hearing uh, takes weeks, even months, where people are inside these intelligence agencies are fighting to have uh, their issues discussed. They're working to prepare the, the uh, leaders of the CIA, the FBI, uh, the DNI, the DIA, the NSA, all these uh, alphabet soup intelligence agencies. So there are no mistaken words, particularly in the in the prepared remarks. And I was blown away by uh, a comment from Dan Coats, who is the director of national intelligence, former senator from Indiana, as he was reading his prepared remarks. Pretty striking um, shot at what I thought was a uh, uh, shot at President Trump and the Trump administration, where he talked about um, the U.S., uh, risking relationships with allies because of uncertain uh, leadership, in effect. And he mentioned specifically trade. Yeah, let me just read the, a, a portion of this. China and Russia will seek spheres of influence and to check U.S. appeal and influence in their regions. 
Meanwhile, U.S. allies and partners' uncertainty about the willingness and the capability of the United States to maintain its international commitments may drive them to consider reorienting their policies, particularly trade, away from Washington. It's kind of remarkable coming from a Trump appointee. Unmistakable criticism of the Trump administration. I think there are two parts to it. One, as, as you read, uh, particularly with respect to trade, the United States is, is either withdrawing or seeking to withdraw from uh, a good number of trade agreements from uh, TPP to NAFTA. Uh, the president's been talking about this. He campaigned on it, in fairness to the president, something that uh, many of his, uh, I think, hardcore supporters, it's one of the reasons that they liked Donald Trump, because he made a point of saying, we have been screwed in these trade deals over the years. We're not going to be screwed anymore. We're getting out of the ones that don't work. Um, and other Republican candidates on the campaign trail didn't do a very good job of pushing back on that, even though I think it's it's not true. I think these trade benefits, uh, these trade deals have by far uh, produced more benefits than they have um, negative consequences. But but the other point, I think, is equally true and, and maybe more disturbing. Russia and China are making a play. I mean, China pretty clearly wants to become the next world superpower. And there was discussion later in the hearings in response to some questions that Marco Rubio raised um, where the intelligence community leaders more or less agreed with that. So this is a a plan from China. They're they're, um, executing it in virtually all aspects of uh, their foreign policy. They're in particular pushing predatory investing here in the United States. They're farming out um, government-sponsored scholars to our universities. They're uh, funding uh, Chinese-backed institutions in places around the world, particularly in Africa, some in Latin America. They are extending their sphere of influence as, as uh, in as concerted and concentrated way possible. And there is real reason to believe that if the United States steps back, they will seek to fill that gap. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, the w- White House is on day seven now of the John Kelly domestic abuse story. And I, I read somewhere that the White House is kind of amazed, or at least some people close to the White House are amazed that this story has uh, so that has legs as opposed to, say, the Stormy Daniels story. I mean, you, you have a you know, paying off a porn star and that lasts, what, 24 hours. This one keeps going on and on. So does John Kelly survive this? Well, I would say, just as a as a point of fact, the the Stormy Daniels story did have legs. Okay, that was oh. a, that was a joke. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, brutal! Sorry, <laughs> sorry. It just didn't get picked up very very many places. How, how you know could the White House have handled these stories any worse than in fact they did? No, I mean this is what's here, here's the problem with the White House. Obviously, the best thing to do in a situation like this is to tell the truth. Unless that truth is going to get you in more trouble. And I think that's what the White House was trying to do. I mean, you know, if I were in the White House and and giving advice, I would say be as transparent as you possibly can. Tell the truth at every at every turn and get this out. If you made mistakes, own the mistakes and try to move past them. The real problem is it appears that nobody in the White House uh, took these allegations of domestic abuse very seriously. And uh, whether that's because they thought Rob Porter was someone who was, in in a sense, irreplaceable. Or because they just aren't uh, attuned to taking these kinds of allegations seriously? I don't know. But uh, there was reporting in the uh, hearing this morning on on Global Threats. uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray was asked about the FBI's involvement and what they did with respect to Rob Porter's 
background investigation, and Ray made it very clear in his testimony that the FBI had done a thorough investigation, that they offered a preliminary investigation, I, I believe as early as March of last March. year, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, offered a final judgment um, in November, and then furnished the White House with additional information after that. All, you know, presumably including these conversations that Rob Porter's ex-wife said they'd had with the FBI detailing what he had allegedly done to them. Uh, the fact that the FBI is providing this information, that, that uh, some of these women reached out uh, independently to the White House, um, that senior White House officials appeared to have known about this and, have, and, and did nothing at all other than to set it aside, it has to be troubling to anybody, whether you're conservative or liberal or wherever you are on, on the spectrum. I mean, these are serious allegations. Of course, Rob Porter deserves the presumption of innocence. But I think if you look at the details of the allegations and the sort of ham-handed yeah. way in which the White House has tried to defend him, uh, it causes you more concern, not less. Yeah, some, somebody's lying here. Clearly. Somebody's lying here. And and up until now, there has been this sort of veneer of competence around John Kelly. And, and that clearly has been shattered by the last seven days. It has been. And some of this, I mean, you know, it, it'll be interesting to watch this as it sorts itself out. I mean, John Kelly, I think the reason that there was this assumption of of competence is because he had demonstrated competence over the course of his career. He'd sort of earned this uh, this level of esteem that I think many people had for him. Um, but there's a problem here. I mean, he says he's told uh, he told one reporter that he learned of these allegations on Tuesday and fired Rob Porter 40 minutes later. And we are now finding out that the White House, folks in the White House, set up a briefing with Rob Porter and four reporters after John Kelly said that he fired him. Of course, Rob Porter didn't actually leave the White House the day after he was supposedly fired by John uh-huh. Kelly. Uh, there are all sorts of contradictions in this story that the White House is is telling and leaking and spinning and counterspinning. And, it, you know, it just gives a broad sense of uh, a lack of seriousness about these issues and a lack of competence in managing them. Okay, let, let's switch to uh, the budget. Uh, two uh, two developments over the last week. You had uh, the budget deal, um, the budget deal over the, the weekend, and then of course you had uh, the Trump budget rolled rolled out. Um, interesting. Earlier today, Speaker Paul Ryan was on Fox Business, and Maria uh, Bartiromo really hit him hard on 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 whether or not he was still a deficit hawk. Uh, let's let's listen to that soundbite. The kind of entitlement reform that we're willing to do in the House. Which is why people are surprised at you, because you've been this entitlement like reform said, we've, person we've and a deficit hawk for That's years. Right. And you and mentioned I still am. Running, running the budget, but you don't look like you are well, based on this budget I know, this last isn't week. A full I mean, you, budget. This is discretionary spending. Well, you mentioned discretionary. I mean, you're, you're also a big boost to abstinence education, $7 billion in community health centers, uh, child care grants. So it's more than just the disaster relief it, yeah, and, and infrastructure. That's true. So this is a Did you have to agree deal. to that stuff just to get the military? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we had to. You have to give to get. So we had to do some domestic spending that the Democrats wanted so we could get our, our defense spending. We got a lot of the spending cuts we wanted that they didn't want either. So, yes, this was a bipartisan compromise. You don't get everything you want. All right, Steve, this is an awkward moment for Paul Ryan, because here you have somebody whose entire career was based on being a, well, you know, talking, warning about the deficit, warning about the, the looming debt crisis last week. 
He signs off on a deal that will add you know, trillions of dollars to the national debt. And then, of course, you have the the Trump budget today or this week that, that doesn't even pretend to balance the budget. What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Paul Ryan's in a really, really difficult spot. I mean, he came back to Congress in 2006, uh, after the 2006 elections, with the sole purpose of reforming entitlements and getting serious about debt and deficits. He deserves tremendous credit, in my view, for the work that he did uh, toward that end. Look at the kinds of things that he was saying in 2008, 2009, 2010, when not only nobody else in the Republican Party was saying these things, but you had people in the Republican Party who were actively counseling Republican candidates around the country not to talk about reforming entitlements, even though we're, we all know it's a slow motion crisis. We all know that, that this is will have calamitous results if we don't deal with this. And Paul Ryan took that issue, made it front and center, got Republicans to include True. it in budgets from 2010 to 2016. Uh, you know, I think he's got a he's got a, a difficult partner partner in the White House right now. Um, Ryan made clear even when he was running with Mitt Romney on the ticket in 2012 that he wanted to push entitlement reform. Donald Trump, when he ran for president in 2016, said repeatedly that he didn't that entitlement reform was a bad deal, uh, that it would be taking money away from people who had paid into the system, and he would fight it. Not only was he not in favor of it, but he would fight it. And this caused some tension when Ryan and and Trump met uh, at the Republican. National Committee headquarters in May of 2016, and they've apparently gotten past it. But this is a this is an ugly moment. Um, I think Republicans needed to increase defense spending. This is something that we, as a magazine, have been calling mm-hmm. for for years. The way that our military has uh, been, I would say, victimized by the broken budgeting process in Washington does tremendous damage to the people who are are required to defend our country. It affects capabilities. It affects readiness. It affects everything. We needed to get them more money. The problem is the trade-off where you're boosting uh, non-military domestic discretionary spending uh, that Democrats wanted in order to get this deal. And that, I think, is is a huge problem. Well, this is what's breathtaking, because even in the president's budget, with uh, all of the rosy assumptions about economic growth, which may be which may be actually fair, and and all of the proposed cuts in domestic spending, you're still looking at pretty uh, close to a trillion dollar a year deficit, as far as the eye can see, adding seven trillion dollars to the national debt over the next eight years. You're looking at a national yeah. debt of something close to twenty eight trillion dollars. And I think a lot of people are asking, what did happen to the party of fiscal responsibility? Was the Republican Party ever really sincere about fiscal responsibility? So let me you know, tee that up. I mean, you and I lived through all of this, uh, the, the Tea Party movement, where we kept talking about the intergenerational transfer of yeah. wealth, the debt bomb that was facing us. And now we have this budget out there. I got an email yesterday from Paul Ryan, his statement saying, this budget lays out a thoughtful, detailed, and responsible blueprint for achieving our shared agenda. The word responsible was the one that kind of hit me in the face. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, that's just not true. Um, look, I think it's a, it, the big question we have to ask ourselves is how many people were actually serious about the kind of things that the Tea Party was, was promoting uh, yes. back then. Um, you know, we were pretty... Uh, favorably disposed to the Tea Party here at the Weekly Standard. I know I was personally, and and I, I was. agreed. I agreed with their with their objectives of of limiting the government and taking seriously our debt and deficits. Um, you know, Henry Olson uh, from the Ethics and Public Policy Center 
has done some work uh, and and looked at polling that suggests, uh, I think in his words, one-sixth of the Republican Party's rank-and-file voters, if I'm remembering this correctly, are truly committed movement ideological conservatives who are dedicated to reducing the size and scope of government. And the others are part of the Republican coalition for other reasons. Um, I was skeptical of that uh, for years, and uh, I, I thought that f- for years I thought that Republicans uh, really, truly believed in reducing the size and scope of government. Yeah. And if you look at polling done by the Gallup organization and others and the percentage of Americans who considered themselves conservatives, self-identified conservatives, uh, it was easy to come to that conclusion. I'm I'm worried that uh, I was just wrong about that, that people don't actually care much about the size and scope of government, or at least not in the way that— that I do, and and um, if that's there were true, a, there were a, we, there were a lot fewer of us than we imagined. Yeah, I mean, if 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 that's true, and 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 we don't have somebody making this case um, on debt and deficits, that we are in in huge trouble. We one sort of fi- final point on that. Um, after the president's State of the Union address, in which he talked about. Uh, didn't talk about the debt at all, didn't mention it. The first time since 1976 a president hasn't mentioned debt in the State of the Union. Um, What struck me was listening to members of Congress, including the House Freedom Caucus, endorse the president's speech. Uh, You know, Mark Meadows, I talked to him about this later, gave the speech an an A+. And, you know, the House Freedom Caucus is was established to limit the size and scope of government. It was particularly focused on on spending. Other House Freedom Caucus members praised the speech as well. And I talked to Mark Meadows after this and, and said, hey, why did you give him an A plus? He didn't even mention this. And and this is, you know, really one of the mm-hmm. most pressing issues. And he said, You're right, that was a you know, that was a big oversight. Um, and Meadows says that he's working with the administration to try to get them to include mandatory spending reform um, on this infrastructure pro- proposal and in other ways. But um, I, I hope that the Freedom Caucus hasn't given up the fight on size and scope of government and spending issues. Um, and I hope that Paul Ryan hasn't either. Uh, if if he, He's done a lot over the years, I think, to deserve the kind sure. of credit that we've given him. Um, and I, he, you know, he did say in this Maria Bartiromo interview this morning, we have to get our other partners in government to be willing to talk, to be willing to do the kind of entitlement reform that we're willing to do in the House. I do think, in his defense, he's a little limited because Mitch McConnell has said publicly that he's not willing to do entitlement reform because Democrats are not willing to sign on. And he's in the White House. You have somebody who's not only not in favor of entitlement reform, but opposed to it. But, you know, this whole episode does sort of reinforce the fact, and you really you know, made, made this point, that the Republican base just doesn't really care about this stuff that much anymore. I think Peter Weiner was uh, was on one of the television shows over the weekend and said, you know, yeah, that uh, economics is a secondary language for the Republican Party. Immigration is the first language. It is now an identity party, not an economic party. I think uh, that sounds right to me. What about you? I think, uh, look, Pete Weiner is is brilliant, uh, and he's been right about these kinds of things a lot more than he's been wrong. I don't think that that's right. I think that's an overstatement. I think there's the, there's a segment of the Republican base that cares first and foremost about immigration. But if you go back and you look at if you look at the exit polls um, that were conducted during the Republican primaries, you typically found when voters were given one of four issues to choose as their top priority in picking a candidate. Immigration typically was 10 to 15 percent of the Republican electorate in an, in an election, in a primary election cycle where Donald Trump was the victor. 
So immigration is very important to the people who you know care most about it and are, in many cases, very vocal. I don't think it's the primary issue of the Republican Party at this point. I just don't. Uh, and I know this has been uh, been beaten to death, but uh, your your take on why there was so much gushing about uh, the, the North Koreans at the Olympics. I mean, e- even by the standards of Walter Durante, um, th- this was this was uh, this was a rather extraordinary moment. Uh, the gushing uh, about, uh, you know, the the what, what was her name? The 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 sister. Yeah. The, the, the allegedly also, hot yes. sister of uh, of the monster of North Korea. Yeah. It's, you it, know, and how she was the Ivanka Trump of North Korea, which may have been the stupidest headline ever written. It, it, it was extraordinary. And, and you know, the, the the first headline that I saw and story that I read about it was on CNN. And, and you thought, oh, maybe there are just some journalists who are, um, you know, not very sophisticated about the history of North Korea and the regime and what it's done to its own people. And then you saw one after another after another of these headlines, thinking that it was so fun that she had given the side eye to Mike Pence and so cute that the North Korean uh, cheerleaders were dressed the same and doing their cheers in sync with, in many cases, articles that neglected altogether to include any context for this. I mean, those North Korean cheerleaders, if they screw up their cheers, could potentially be put to death when they return home for uh, for not having represented their country well. Um, the sister of Kim Jong Un is the head of the uh, the regime's education and propaganda ministry. Um, she, she is responsible for glossing over the brutality of the regime, the effective concentration camps in the regime, the horrendous human rights abuses committed by this regime under Kim Jong Un under. Kim Il-sung under Kim Jong-il, uh, going back decades, literally. And what bothers me, I guess, more than anything is we've known about this forever. This is an open secret. Um, the United Nations has written extensive reports documenting these abuses. And the American media collectively has given them a shrug because, I don't know, because she's yeah. because she, she bested Mike Pence? I don't know. She's not Mike Pence. Okay, so are you a pro-parade guy or, or anti-parade guy? I thought everybody loved to parade. Where do, you, where do you come down on the parade? On the military parade? The I, military parade. I am... The, the, I am the, the, the Donald Trump's missile is bigger than anybody else's missile parade. <laughs> I am I am all for um, honoring the military, and I don't think you can do it enough. Um, but this kind of a parade seems silly to me. I mean, the United States demonstrates its its strength on the battlefield and by winning the battles that that we're involved in. Um, we don't do it by having some parade that would likely resemble resemble one thrown by. Kim Jong Un, and there was an interesting but unscientific poll. I think it was in, uh, I think it was in Stars and Stripes. Don't quote me on that. Um, of military members, some fifty-one thousand respondents. When I last checked in a couple of days ago, and eighty-nine percent of them uh, were opposed to this idea. So I, I, I think it's, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. But more importantly, uh, at least a, a good chunk of our men and women in uniform don't think it's a good idea. I think it was interesting, you know, he- hearing from the men and women in uniform how much they hate marching. The people in the military, <laughs> yes. of all the things they really, really dislike, that's right at the that's right at the top of the list. They just do not like being in parades. They don't like marching. So, do you think it'll actually take place? Will there be a parade sometime this year? 
military well, parade. Look, if if Donald Trump wants a military parade, and this is not the first time that it's come up, I think right. that we're, we're more likely than not to see a military parade. Um, I don't think a lot of people are willing to, to stand in his way if it's something that that he wants. And frankly, I mean, if you if you work in his cabinet, if you're Jim Mattis and you think it's not a great idea, would you rather fight him on the idea of a military parade or would you rather push him to make a, a you know, a, have, have save your fight with him or a, or a challenge with the president on another issue? of? Oh, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. This, this is not the hill that they want to die on. Plus, this is kind of the ultimate Trump troll that he knows the kinds of reaction he's going to get from uh, from the left, from Democrats, from from the media. And he's going to feast on that, that, you know, you people don't like the military. You know, you, you don't like this uh, this robust, uh, muscular sort of uh, patriotism. So I think we'd get it. OK, so one final question. What was the dumbest take of the day, the dumbest thing that you saw in the media or social media over the last I will extend it to the last uh, 48 hours? Boy, that is a great question. It's a target-rich environment. It is a target-rich environment. Um, I I would have to say, and and this feels like a cop out because we've already discussed it, but I would have to to point to one of the you know fifty articles uh, on um, on Kim Jong Un's sister and the North Korean mm-hmm. regime, and and just just the fact that because she gave Mike Pence a uh, a stern look and Mike Pence, you know, s- sat there unawares that that she somehow bested him. We saw that again and again and again in the media, in full articles, but also you know, hot takes in in uh, social media. And I think it was uh, it was a disgrace, really. Yeah, I, I think that's right up there. Um, I, I thought the incredibly um, overwrought reaction to Jeff Sessions' use of the term, you know, Anglo-American tradition. He's talking about the tradition of the sheriff and the way that people in social media decided that that was somehow a dog whistle for white supremacy as opposed to, no, it is an actual Anglo-American tradition. It's it's this, you know, uh, hair-trigger outrage that apparently has become the growth industry in, um, in in social media. So that was that was my but but again, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of dumb takes out there, and the the North Korean ones I think are hard to top. Yeah, I think you're right, but but you're you're right about the Jeff Sessions one too, and the 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 immediate there there is a sense. I mean, in the coverage of the Trump administration, uh, it's certainly true that a lot of what we're seeing is unprecedented and new, um, and in some ways genuinely shocking, but. It's not the case that everything is unprecedented and new and genuinely shocking. And I think there is a sort of hair trigger response from many in the mainstream media to want to assume that everything is unprecedented, that everything that we're seeing is new and that it's all outrageous no matter what. And there wasn't anything outrageous about what Jeff Sessions said. He, in fact, has said that repeatedly in speeches over the years. Um, So it's not even particularly new. It's just that a few people seized on it and tried to make it a big deal and uh, succeeded at least for a little while. Yeah, and unfortunately, that kind of overstatement uh, induces eye rolling, which uh, is, is not terribly constructive. Stephen Hayes, thank you for joining me on the, I suppose this would be the premiere, um, a premiere edition of the what the should we call it the the, the Daily Podcast 2.0. Yeah, the return the return of the Daily Standard Podcast. Yes, and thank you for joining us on the Daily Standard Podcast. I, I think um, I, I am genuinely excited about what I think we'll be able to do with this and uh, so is everybody here so we're we're thrilled to have you and think this is going to be a lot of fun 
Well, thank you. Uh, And uh, thanks for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. We will be back tomorrow and the next day. Stay tuned.